0: Romans 9, we have Paul's thesis on Israel's past. Romans 10, Paul goes on to talk about Israel's present. And the whole thrust of this chapter is that although the people, the ancient people of God, have rejected their Messiah, they may still be saved. But that salvation is through the Lord Jesus Christ. So chapter 10 is about the spreading of the gospel. I want to look at it in just three headings, I think. Four. We'll look at the spiritual preparation that is needed for those who would spread the message of good news. And then the saving proclamation that is needed. Uh, which is the message. And then the very simple promise that the message carries. And then finally the scriptural pattern for mission in the church. Spiritual preparation that we must undergo. Now Paul starts the chapter here, as with the other two chapters in this section, with a heartfelt prayer for the Jewish people. Brethren, My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. If we're ever going to preach the gospel, if we're ever going to carry the message of salvation to lost souls, then surely there must be spiritual preparation on our part. We can't hope to be a soul winner. If our souls are dead and cold and lifeless and that applies whether we are gospel preachers or evangelists or personal workers or missionaries or we are visiting someone in hospital or we are simply witnessing to friends and loved ones. We need hearts that have been prepared. Hearts that are warm toward the lost. Hearts that are dead to sin are hearts that are full of God's love for sinners. Hearts that are yielded in obedience to the Lord. So Paul says, my heart's desire and prayer for Israel is that they might be saved. The messenger must have a passionate heart for the lost. Paul's heart's desire. We might challenge ourselves with that. We might ask ourselves, what is my heart's desire? And everyone will have different answers. And in this materialistic age, generally the heart's desire lies in some form of material wealth. For the, the, the times in which we live are completely obsessed with money and possessions And yet Jesus says that we're not to be like that. We're not to lay up for ourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt. same applies to our occupations. It's good to have a good job and a a fulfilling job, but what use is it if our occupation is so demanding that it causes us to neglect our spiritual life To neglect the Lord's people and the Lord's house. A desire for wealth, a materialistic desire, is the desire of the world. Some of us have a legitimate desire for health. Nothing wrong with looking after yourself. It's important to take control of your health. We should be looking after ourselves. But it must never become an obsession with us that it becomes part of that which hinders us from doing the Lord's work. You see, these bodies that we have, which are gradually rotting away, will one day be replaced with new mortal bodies. Paul said bodily exercise profiteth little, but... Godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. A desire for material blessing, a desire for health, a desire for happiness or enjoyment. Uh, There are people who go to church on the Lord's Day and they go and they don't want to hear God's word challenging them in any way. A nice easy meeting. Lots of nice worship. Nothing to trouble your conscience. Just to eat and drink and be happy and never be troubled with the terrible thought that there are souls all around you who are going into a lost eternity. What's our heart's desire? Paul's heart's desire was a desire for souls. I remember a man that I knew years ago. I never got on very well with him. He was a brethren preacher. And he and I had had a few disagreements and it had caused some problems over his, in my opinion, his eagerness to press for conversions in meetings. But I secretly admired him. He'd been many years in the police service and was now retired. And my a relative of mine was one day driving through the town of Keity in South Armagh. If you know anything about Keity, it's not a welcoming place for the police, or it wasn't some years ago. I don't know what it's like now. And this relative of mine says, you'll never guess who I met in Keity. It was the man that I was talking about the brethren preacher. I says, what was he doing there as a policeman? What was he doing in Katie of all places? What a dangerous place for an ex-copper to be. He said he was standing on the white line in the middle of the road at the traffic lights, knocking the windows of cars and passing in gospel tracts. Think about the joy of that for a moment. Because there is great satisfaction to be found in soul winning. Desire for souls. Paul's word here is the Greek word eudokia. And it's a word that simply means good pleasure. What pleasure would you get from evangelism? Think of the, the joy of spreading the good seed. Think of the, the challenge of being out in the doorsteps, in the open air, and tract distribution, in evangelism, the joy of leading a soul to the Lord, the gladness of heart if a sinner comes to the Savior. Think of the joy in heaven if someone will come up to you in eternity and say it was your witness, it was your lesson in the Lord's day. It was your tract. It was your poster. It was your banner. It was your message that awakened me to my need of Savior. Passionate heart for souls. God give us passionate hearts. It's easy for us to be content with having sound doctrine. And to forget that without that passion for the gospel that Paul has here, that we might be wasting all of our learning and our orthodoxy. The messenger must have a passionate heart, a desire for people to be saved, a prayerful heart for his desire and his prayer to God for Israel. May God give us hearts that pray for the lost, Praying for the lost will never win souls without prayer. The messenger must have a perceptive heart. Look at verse 2 and 3. Because Paul gets right down to the problem with the sinners of his day and of ours. For I bear them record. They have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. He knew it He knew the state of the people around him. They were without God and without hope. Their religion was simply self-righteousness. They were still sinners. And we need the Lord to give us such perceptive hearts that we are not so easily deceived by false professions and false religions. Let's see sinners for what they are from our own experience. From the Word of God poor creatures. We were wallowing in sin trying to get to heaven by our own works and bound for an awful lost eternity, the spiritual preparation of a soul winner. Paul gives it to us here. The one who carries God's message must have a passionate desire in their heart to see souls won for the lost. A prayerful heart that drives them to their knees like John Knox of all those years ago who cried, God, give me Scotland or I'll die. A perceptive heart that looks at friends and neighbors and sees them not just as our family or our friends or our loved ones, but as sinners who are lost sinners on the way to a lost eternity. May God prepare us carry forth his message. But Paul then moves from the preparation of the messenger to the very center and soul of that message, to the very person who made that gospel work possible, to the Lord Jesus Christ, to the Messiah that Israel has rejected, and in verse four, he tells us of Messiah's absolutely amazing achievement. He says, "For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to every everyone that believeth. Imagine that God's righteousness is Christ." We no longer have to work up our own righteousness knowing we can never attain to God's standards. It is simply enough to believe in what Christ has done. He has taken away the condemnation of the broken law of God from each one of us. It is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And he offers that salvation on a wide availability. Look at 6 to 8. Because there are some amazing words. But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise. Say not in thine heart, who shall ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. Or who shall descend into the deep. That is to bring Christ again from the dead. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith. Isn't that amazing? There's nothing we can do to be saved. We don't have to bring ourselves up to the level of Christ and bring Him down to us. We do not have to go down to bring Him up to us. There is nothing profound in the gospel invitation. There is nothing that we can do. We don't have to ascend the heights or plumb the depths in order to be saved. He is within reach of sinners right now who will accept Him as Savior. He is nigh thee. Even in thy mouth and in thy heart, the word of faith that we preach. Here's what Jesus has done. When we were under the condemnation of God's law, and when we could never, by our own works, ever hope to achieve the perfect the perfection of the law which God demanded from us, Christ did it for us at the cross. He took upon himself that broken law, all the sins that we have committed, and he atoned for them. And so he makes us righteous in him, we who believe in him. And he has made that righteousness that will bring us into the very presence of God available to us who can do nothing to take it, who can do nothing to earn it. It is there simply by faith. It is near us. Didn't Jesus say the kingdom of heaven is at hand? Let's move on a little bit further because this message of salvation is profound in its simplicity. The simple promise of this message begins in verse 9. One of the most famous verses in the Bible, isn't it? When I was a wee boy, I was sitting in the streets and there was a Presbyterian elder from the church down the road and he used to take little children's meetings. And he taught us Romans chapter 10 and verse 9, right from we were six or seven years old. We used to sing about it. Romans ten and nine is a favourite verse of mine. Confessing Christ as Lord, we are saved by grace divine. We did that when we were children. So here we have this simple message. The method of it's explained. To be saved, in verse 9, a person must simply believe and confess Christ and acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. Our hearts must believe. If we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus, Romans chapter 10 and verse 9, and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. What an amazing declaration. People will sometimes say, well, does that mean you can go around telling people that you're a Christian and that gets you to heaven? Ah. Well, if you believe that, you've taken the verse out of context. You can't just lift one verse. If you go on to verse 10, it begins with the word for. So verse 10 is going to explain verse 9. For with the heart... Man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For, the scripture saith, whoever believes on him shall not be ashamed. Do you see? The explanation of verse 10 is found in verse 11. The explanation of verse 9 is found in verse 10. Salvation begins in the heart. Well, salvation begins in the counsels of God, but as far as the practical application of that to the sinner, it is the sinner who comes under conviction of sin, and the sinner who is brought by the Holy Ghost to believe in the Lord, and God gives that man or woman faith, and with that faith they exercise belief in the Lord, and God counts it as righteousness, And the one who has this faith and who is converted and made anew by faith can do nothing else but confess it. No man could deny Christ and expect God to save him. And its security is affirmed. For whoever believeth in him shall not be ashamed. If we have the Lord, we will never be ashamed. Especially on Judgment Day, when we shall find that if we have confessed him, he shall not be afraid to confess us. And its source is established, look at verse 12, For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. And then in verse 13, the very essence of simplicity. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Isn't it amazing? What an amazing gospel promise. Whosoever. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, people of all classes and all creeds and all colors and all backgrounds and all conditions and all families and all environments, People who are lonely people, they may call upon the name of the Lord and they'll be saved. People who are frightened people, people who are happy people, they may call on the name of the Lord and be saved. People who are popular people and people who are unpopular people, people who are attractive people and unattractive people, people who are sick and people who are healthy, people who are moral people, need to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. People who are immoral people will find that God will deal with their immorality when they call upon the name of the Lord. Isn't it interesting that right at the very end of the Bible we read these words like an epitaph where it says the spirit and the bride say come. And let him that heareth say come. And let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The gospel mission was taking place in a tent many, many years ago in Northern Ireland. The man who was taking the mission was asked, what will we put on the, on, the, on the invitations? He says, put on it the word come. Come. And write it down the page. And beside the word come, make it out like an acrostic. Catholics, orange men, masons, everybody. Nowadays they could change masons to Muslims. Everyone needs to be saved. Whoever shall call. It's a greatest possible invitation, but there's also a great restriction. That whosoever is restricted to those who call upon the name of the Lord. It's the greatest possible plea. For if we cast our burdens upon the Lord, he will never turn us away. It's the greatest possible promise for when we call upon the name of the Lord we shall be saved. There is no doubt, there is no maybe the one who calls upon the Lord shall be saved. What a splendid simple gospel message. Here we are in our misery and sin. We only have to Respond to the Holy Spirit's work of conviction by crying out to the Lord, Oh God, save me. Whosoever calleth on the name of the Lord shall be saved. One last wee point before we finish, because in the remainder of the chapter, Paul sets out how God has ordained that the message of the gospel will be proclaimed. The scriptural pattern for mission. How the spiritually prepared messenger will take the simple message of the Savior to the whole world, both Jews and Gentiles. Verse 14. The message must be declared. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? And there it is. Look at the logical way in which Paul lays out the arguments for gospel preaching. You can't call on the Lord if you don't believe in him. The Jews did not. You can't believe on him if you have never been told. You will never be told of the Savior if there is no preacher. There will never be a preacher if someone is not prepared and commissioned for the task. There is a God-ordained way of receiving his word. It is this in verse 17. Faith cometh by hearing. And hearing by the word of God. And we pray tonight that God forgive those churches and those pulpits and those ministers. Who have forsaken the preaching of the word. And broken the chain of Paul's logic. And denied the gospel to hungry souls. The message must be declared. And yet we have still this understanding that even having declared it, it might be denied by those who hear. For in verse 18, Paul goes back to Israel. And he says, but I say, have they not heard? Oh, yes, they have. Israel has heard. Their sound went into all the earth, and their words unto the ends of the world. Moses spoke to them. Isaiah spoke to them. They had the prophets. They had the law. They've heard the gospel and they've rejected it. And Paul's quoting Old Testament scripture to show how that disobedience brought on to them further condemnation. The plight of the Christ rejector is very hard. There will be people in eternity who will be tortured by the memories of being in gospel meetings and having rejected the Saviour. Israel's present is that there is a message to be proclaimed. To be proclaimed to Jew and to Gentile alike. And the message is the message of the gospel. The message of Christ who takes away our sins. The message not of works but of grace but by grace through faith. The message that we can come and believe in the Lord and call upon his name and we shall be saved, whether Greek or Jew or Gentile or Roman, male or female, rich or poor, for the gospel is for all. Paul would later say in Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul's heart longs for the conversion of the Jews. And the message of the gospel is available to them as well as to us. It's a glorious message. It's a message of pardon and forgiveness And the great paradox of it is that for those to whom it was originally brought, they have rejected it. And in that rejection, they brought the judgment of God upon themselves. Israel's past, one of rejection. Israel's present, the day of opportunity. When we look at chapter 11 and summarize it, we shall see Israel's future. Whenever the fullness of the Gentiles are gathered in, and all of Israel shall be seen.